Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We have two standards of justice in our country, one for people like you and me, and one for the corrupt political class, of which there are many. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 35 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. All right. I'll bite. Are there two standards of justice in America? Is Trump held to a different standard because he is a Republican than, say, Hunter Biden because he's a Democrat? I think that's a hard case to make. Lots of Democrats have been prosecuted. Heck, I'm one of them. But there are two standards of justice, aren't there? Maybe more than two. The privileged people who can afford top-notch lawyers have less risk of going to prison than a poor defendant. The black and brown people face greater chances of being arrested, charged, and convicted than whites. All of these things are true. We like to think that justice is blind, but as a nation, we know that some folks are more likely to find themselves in front of a jury than others. Perhaps the best and final line of defense to make sure that justice is done, regardless of how they got there, is our right to our day in court. Donald Trump may not be happy that he's being charged with a crime, but he will have his day in court, and all it takes is one juror to agree with one of the several defenses he may raise. And by the way, you can go and listen to the podcast version of The Middle from this past weekend, where I go into all of the different defenses that he's raised, and we talk about them a little bit. The right to trial by jury is so important to our democracy that it has its own place in the Bill of Rights. But what if that right is effectively taken away? not by an act of Congress or a deliberate decision by anyone. But what if that happens? In federal cases, plea bargains now account for 97% of all outcomes in criminal cases. Now, jury trial is still available in 100% of cases. But why do only 3% of defendants opt for that? Is it that cops and prosecutors are so good at their job that they have a batting average of about, what is it, 930 in arresting and charging the guilty person? Or could there be a penalty for uh, opting for a trial. The huge discrepancy between what someone is charged with if they go to trial and what they are offered in a plea bargain. One case I know of intimately is my own. When I was accused in my sexting scandal, the U.S. attorney offered me a choice. Accept a plea bargain for 21 months on account of obscenity or go to trial on a charge that would have a 5 or 10 year mandatory minimum sentence. That was the choice that was offered to me. I had a great lawyer. I had some resources, not a ton, but I had some advantages. The case against me for being an idiot was open and shut. The legal case against me was not very robust, to say say the least. And as you've heard me say on this microphone many times before, I accept responsibility for what I did. My lawyer told me he thought maybe we can win the case. But the risk was so high that the idea of missing five years of my son's life was so frightening that I took the deal. So was I an unusual case? In some ways, I was. You know, I was famous. My story was on the front page of the New York Post. Cases for people getting charged with what I get charged with are almost unheard of. But I think my example was something about being faced with a penalty for trying for opting to take a trial. Now, to try to understand this better, why it's something that affects people on all ends of the political spectrum, why it's so corrosive to our system, I'm joined by Norman Reimer. Norman Reimer, one of the foremost defense lawyers in the country, but also one of the people 
at the very forefront of trying to reform our criminal justice system in a way that, frankly, left and right have rallied around. He's of counsel to the firm of Vladek, Raskin, and Clark. He's the former CEO of the organization Fair Trials, the former executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and he's someone who has practiced criminal defense law for a great deal of his life. And so welcome, Norman Reimer. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. So I think we all understand what a plea bargain is and why we have them. It could be a bargain for the defendant. He gets a lower charge. It saves money going to, to trial. It's faster for both the defendants and for the victims of the crime to get an outcome to, the right, to this. So, so why is it bad that that number is 97%? Is that inherently a problem? Well, first of all, the 97% number is a number which uh, we've authenticated on the federal side. It, it's actually higher in many of the states. There are some jurisdictions where literally no cases go to trial whatsoever. And New York State is one of them. New states, York right? State is definitely one of them. We, uh, The NACDL and the New York State Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers did a study on New York State. Uh, and found that there are, there are, in fact, jurisdictions where no cases are tried. Look, if this really was a plea bargain, that would be something. That would be, you know, a bargain implies that people are dealing at arm's length and they come to an agreement. But that's not what plea bargaining in the United States of America is. If you want to call it anything, you could call it plea begging. Because what it is, is the coercive use of a vast array of tools to extract waivers from vast numbers of people who, who come into the system. And so the idea that this somehow uh, is, is a good thing is, is completely anathema to those who believe in the fundamental rights that we have. You know, you said it in your, in your intro, the, the, the right to a trial is mentioned multiple times in the Bill of Rights. It was one of the most important uh, features uh, that the founders had in mind for, for how this country would function, and it has virtually become obsolete. And is there, it, it, why has that happened? It's a combination of factors. I mean, like, give, give us a sense. If we were to look at that same body of data, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, would we see a dramatically different number of yeah. trials happening? We, we can see, for example, on the federal system, uh, the number over the last 20, 30 years uh, went from uh, 20% of cases being tried to 3% or less. Uh, and bear in mind that when you look at that statistic of, of, of 3% of the cases being tried, a, a vast percentage of those 3% of the cases are cases which are so awful, uh, so horrible, uh, that no offer would ever be made under any circumstances. I see. So it's not so much that the defendant is saying, I don't want a plea bargain. It's the other way around. The, some public pressure or the, or the uh, offense is so bad that the that they say, well, we're, we're going to have a trial anyway. Somebody drives their car into a crowd of people, right. a terrorist. They're not going to offer anything in that situation. So there's going to be a trial no matter what. Um, but the fact of the matter is we do see this. We've seen it on the state system as well. The percentage of cases that get tried has gone down. And, and a very important thing to remember about the, the trial penalty, which is, again, it's the idea that you will get a geometrically increased sentence simply for asserting fundamental rights. So, and it happens, by the way, at every stage of the proceeding. There are places in this country where you don't get a lawyer at your first appearance. What you do get is a judge or a magistrate saying, if you want to come back and get a lawyer, you can come back, but you'll have to, you'll have to wait several weeks and you may have to wait in jail. We also have situations where bail is used as ransom. You want to you want to you want to fight this case? I'm setting bail. OK, right. but but just and the broad outlines and just to be clear, the broad outlines of the trial penalty is you're brought before the bar of justice 
And the prosecutor says your choice is between a very high penalty if you choose to go to trial or a much lower one if you just sign right now and say, I agree, and you walk out the door. And so all of those things, being held in, uh, held on bail, having to hire a lawyer, having to wait and everything else, it does seem pretty appealing for a lot of defendants to say, OK, I'll sign it. But I guess the problem is some of those people are agreeing to that when they haven't done the crime. Exactly, right? exactly. And that's one of the things that we have learned over the last number of years, uh, over 15% of the authenticated exonerations, which the National Registry of Exonerations now has over 3,000 of them, over 15% involve people who were actually innocent. And there are, we have documented many cases of individuals. Uh, there's a case that we, we, in one of these reports that, that focused, that, that, that was explored quite in depth, where the individual was charged with rape. He was facing a, 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 a capital prosecution, and he ended up pleading guilty. And 12 years later, after serving 12 years, he was exonerated by DNA. Right. So when people say, well, if you didn't do the crime, why did you plead to it? There's so many pressures that make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to give you one more example, because I really think this drives it home. This was a case that uh, when I was working uh, with uh, NACDL, we were working on a clemency uh, initiative here in New York. And we came upon the case of this of a young man who was serving 25 years to life for murder. And the case involved a situation where his, his mother was being abused by, by her paramour, and there was a fight uh, that broke out uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning on their porch in Queens. And in the course of this fight, it's undisputed that the young man shot and killed the guy who was abusing uh, his mother. He turned himself in. He was released while the case was pending, which, you know, almost never happens in, in a murder case. And ultimately, uh, he went to trial with a self-defense claim. Uh, and the jury, after several days, convicted him. When the lawyers who were working on his clemency 20 years later, right, 20 years later, analyzed the case, what they found was that prior to the trial, the young man had been offered a plea to three to nine years. And because he went to trial, he faced a mandatory minimum of 15 years. And because the judge was angry that he'd gone to trial, the judge went beyond that and gave him 25 years to life. So the question, so here's a case where somebody is arguably innocent. They have a right to let a jury of their peers decide that case. But should they, should they have to do it under the penalty of getting a sentence, which is Nine times greater. But let me ask you, that was a case where you can, as you describe it, at least you have a judge who was perhaps not acting in, in good faith. But you could have a situation where the prosecutor acting in good faith says, you know what? I think that the, the, the sentence that's laid out in these mandatory minimums that the legislature passed are too high. You can have legislators who say, listen, we're trying to crack down on crime, so we want to have very high mandatory minimums. You can have judges who say, listen, my hands are basically tied here. This is the prosecutor deciding how to prosecute. We reward prosecutors for getting convictions however they get them. And they, when they get a conviction, they put out a press release. We got a conviction. I know it happened to me. So is, it, is there something structural going on in the system that you've seen that maybe we could address to try to – solve this problem, whereas everyone's just acting the way they should be acting in the presence of circumstances. Absolutely. There are, there are, there are problems. First of all, the system 
it, the system uh, values efficiency over justice. Yes. And that has to end. We cannot have, we cannot have a decent society where people, uh, where people have respect for, for the judicial system, where we, where, we, where we put a premium on moving cases. We have in this, in this country a problem of overcriminalization. We rely on the criminal justice system to prosecute far too many things, uh, all kinds of things that are socially, economically, or personally disfavored that don't belong in the criminal justice system. And what is enabling it is this plea bargaining assembly line. And that's what we have to attack. We have to be willing to say, no, we are not going to continually flood the system with this, and therefore we won't need to rely that heavily on plea bargaining. So is it primarily the respon- is it primarily a problem with prosecutors over prosecuting, or is it I mean, are judges can a judge use their discretion and say, I don't like the way this looks or I don't like the way this negotiates? Let me ask you this. Do judges have any vision into this discussion that's going on between prosecutors so, and defendants? So it's a really great question you, you, you've asked uh, because the fact of the matter is it varies depending upon where you are. In the federal system, the judges ostensibly have no role to play in, in the plea discussions and they only deal with the case as it ultimately ends up before them and that's – Part of the, the, the fact that the prosecutors have complete control over the, over the charging decisions and, and what charges to, to add if somebody doesn't plead. Remember, one of the things that goes on here, as you go deeper into the case, they make the, the penalty that much greater. Uh, so, so on the one hand, you have some judges- meaning, meaning they say, if you take this now, we'll give you this number right. of months. But if you we'll- push us- it might go up to five years That's or ten right. and years. And we have cases documented. This is well known. It's been well written about even by judges uh, that prosecutors will send letters on the eve of trial saying, we just want you to know that if you go to trial, we're going to seek to bring in this conduct right. and that conduct right. and elevate your penalties. So you have on one hand, you have judges who are – their, their hands are tied. On the other hand, you have judges that are actively involved in some of the state systems, New York being one of them, and the case that I just gave you an example of, they're putting their thumb on the scale to try to move cases. That has to stop. So when you talk about solutions, right, you got to look at a lot of different things. We need some new ethical rules. We need to uh, we need to deal with the problem of mandatory minimums. And explain that. I want to talk about that because that's something that, that when I was in Congress, there was a lot of conversation about mandatory minimums. That is like giving a prosecutor kind of a nuclear bomb because then even the judge, even if you have a judge who says, wait a minute, this smells bad, they're going to be bound. I know that happened in, in, in my case that a mandatory minimum was leaking out there that even if we got the benefit of a good judge who said, listen, this has never been prosecuted before, you're just doing it because he's Anthony Weiner. The prosecutor had it in their pocket, even though they might not want to use it, they had it in the pocket. How do the mandatory minimums come into play here? Mandatory minimums are the most insane approach to justice that you can that you can possibly conjure first of all they were born of an of an idea that you can't trust judges well if you if you have a system in which you can't trust judges you might as well pack up and go home because right, right. the the judicial branch is there to be the arbiter so that's so it's based on a flawed concept but beyond that what they do is they perpetuate vast injustice now let me give you an example of what i mean very often it is the least culpable person the person who has a real honest-to-goodness defense who will end up going to trial. The most culpable person 
will not go to trial. They will often be given the opportunity to cooperate and they will get below the mandatory minimum. Right. And there are case upon case upon case, I could give you the names of them, where the, where the least culpable person gets the greatest sentence. Can I ask you about an element, before we talk about the what your coalition has done and how broad and wide it is, there was an element in my trial that's the, in, well, we didn't have a trial, in, in, in my proceeding, where as once I accepted the plea bargain, I had to then stand up and accept that I had done what I was accused of doing. Um, although, once they had to figure out the plea bargain, they had to figure out what to charge me with, and it was a little bit different. And I had to kind of agree to facts that, let's just, let's just say, perhaps didn't happen. That's even more so if you're innocent of the crime, right? right. You're having an innocent person who takes the plea bargain. I, all right, I'll take three years. I'll be home with my family in three years rather than the potential of a mandatory minimum of 15. But they always get hung up on this idea. At the very end, the very last thing that happens is the judge said, are you sure you did all this stuff? And he said, yes, Your Honor. And that winds up being the bugaboo that all the critics of your reform say, hey, your guy admitted he did it. I got it right here in the transcript. How do you fix that? If you asked me what is the single greatest cause of coercive plea bargaining and the trial penalty, I would say to you that it is jurisprudential abdication. You know, historically, the Supreme Court did not approve of plea bargaining. It's only within the, it was only in the 20th century, huh. in the latter part of the 20th century, that, they, that the court indulged this fiction that by a person admitting to what they did, they somehow, we, 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 they would not inculpate themselves if they weren't actually guilty. And I will tell you, there is nobody that has worked in the system that doesn't recognize that the so-called plea colloquy that you're talking about yeah. where you have to admit to what you're doing is judicial uh, is, is judicial sanction of, of a known lie yeah. because every single person who sit, who every by the way a defense lawyer has to advise their client that if they don't tell the court if you don't say that the, they did it right and that they're pleading guilty voluntarily and have their own free will then they will not get the bargain I mean there is. But it's not true. There is a certain amount of kabuki theater that's going on. Totally you have the prosecutor who has started a conversation saying, this is your behavior. However, I'm willing to agree to a lower penalty, which is this different set of behavior. The defendant, you know, so the prosecutor then knows that. Then the defendant is put in the situation of admitting to it. You've got lawyers. And not only that, the judge probably is well aware, at least at the end of this, Mm -hmm. that you're agreeing to something that you weren't originally charged with. It is, it is a, a, a really pernicious problem. But tell me, you, you, you described off mic before we started how this is some, this, reforming this is kind of a left-right thing. Talk a little bit about that. It seems like tough on crime people who want to lock more people up would say, I don't mind this scenario that you're describing. 97%, that's great. Let's get in the, I, I don't mind that everyone comes before the bar of justice gets thrown in prison. Well, Why is it bad? Well, the truth of the matter is, first of all, you know, tough on crime, you know, everyone's tough on crime until it affects somebody that, they, that, that, right. they're, that they're close to. And then when they begin to understand how the system really operates, they sometimes come to a different, uh, a different place. But what has happened over the last several years is it started with a, a Human Rights Watch did an, a, a remarkable study, uh, a report called An Offer You Can't Refuse. Uh, then uh, Fair Trials, which is an international reform group, uh, did something called the Disappearing Trial. NACDL did a, uh, the report that you've uh, alluded to. And what has happened over the last several years is a number of groups have come together. And earlier this year, a, uh, a coalition called the End the Trial Penalty Coalition was formed. Uh, and it includes groups like, get this, the ACLU, 
and Stand Together, which is the philanthropic arm of the Koch brothers, Right on Crime, FAM, uh, NACDL, uh, any one of a number because of groups this is an from out- right and left. Because, right. because from the stand, first of all, everyone who has looked at the criminal justice system, regardless of where, where they're coming from ideologically, they see the problem, right? We, we are leading the world in incarceration. It doesn't make our communities safer. It doesn't make our society fairer. It perpetuates racial disparity. And, and what these groups are saying- And it's expensive. Saying, it's very it's expensive. It's very expensive. It's not a smart- That's where the right on crime folks have been. They've been actually, you know, they led some of the f- first reforms started in Texas under, right. under Republican- and, and, and the first step back was passed under Donald Trump. It was passed under Trump. It had bipartisan support, fortunately. And I think there's a lot more of that. I think people are now coming to recognize that we have to, that we have to deal with it. And this array of groups that are, that are involved in this uh, is really quite remarkable. And, it, and I think it is, I think we are at the beginning of something that is going to truly change the system. Another thing that's happened within the, just within the last uh, a couple of months is uh, an institute has been formed called the Plea Bargaining Institute, uh, which is going to look at spawning the research necessary. Remember, all of this plea bargaining stuff, it takes place, uh, it, it, it's like a constitution-free zone. There's no transparency. Right. There's no data to see what kind of offers So is that made. where, here, tick off a couple of the solutions, some of the recommendations that you guys, are they legislative reforms? Are they reforms that have in, in the way law schools teach students? Or is it a reform in the way judges are trained? To, to, to tell us a couple all, of solutions. All of the above. First of all, we either have to start to limit mandatory minimums or we have to have uh, release mechanisms to get to, to address the problem of disparity. Right, but that's after, to, that's after the mistake has been made. Well, it could be in this. No, it could you. It it could be afterwards. That's a second look type of legislation. Right. But I'm talking about legislation that would empower a judge if there is disparity between the person that's about to be sentenced under the mandatory minimum and other people similarly situated who got lesser sentences. The judge would have the power. It's still a judicial power. It's not, it's not automatic right. to consider that and go below the mandatory minimum. So By the way, way, we haven't it. even talked about sentencing guidelines, which is another thing. <laughs> now, just for our listeners, you know, we had mandatory minimums and then kind of as a reaction to the idea that there's too much disparity, too much discretion. I mean, what this really does come down to, Norman, unfortunately, is that we have to try to figure out this tension between giving – Discretion, meaning eliminating mandatory minimums, but not having so much discretion that there's abuse. Well, if, if they really are guidelines and they're purely advisory, they can be helpful. But the problem is sometimes they're not advisory and, and they're driven by fictions, okay? The two biggest categories of cases, right, in all white-collar cases, any economic crime, what determines the sentence is the loss calculation. And the loss calculation can easily be manipulated by prosecutors. It can overstate a person's actual criminality. On the other side, you have the drug crimes where it's driven by the weight. So I was recently involved in the case of a young individual with a very uh, you know, difficult uh, mental history uh, who delivered a package. He was a mule and uh, the package had drugs. He gets prosecuted. The package had a pound. The conspiracy involved 50 kilos. 
he's going to be held for that mm. 50 kilos. Right, That's right. not right. So you've got to have, you've got to come up with ways to, if you're not going to do away with these mandatory minimums and these guideline uh, uh, fictions, then you've got to have a way to give a judge the opportunity to do what is right. just. I, I mean, I, I agree. I would frequently say to my colleagues who are in favor of these mandatory minimums, that we fi- I find it unusual that we believe that our constituents have good enough judgment to elect us or the elected mm-hmm. officials, but judges and juries are idiots. They can't figure out anything else, so we have to make these mandatory minimums. Be- before we, we end, tell us a little bit of where can our listeners go to read a little bit more about this. If they want to be active in this, where should they go? Well, the one, one place they can go is to endthetrialpenalty.org. End uh, to learn a little bit about uh, more about it, to see some of the groups that are involved, and go to the websites of those groups that are that are involved in this coalition. I also want to mention that uh, the American Bar Association uh, just recently had a task force on plea bargaining, came out with a wonderful list of 14 principles. Uh, they're going to move that through the ABA uh, sometime this summer. And uh, we're going to be looking to uh, – first of all, we want the stories. We want to hear about right. the injustices because that's what wakes people and up. And is there anything on the legislative front that people can call their congressman and ask to pass or a package of bills or anything like that? Well, I can tell you that in New York State, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a case law which uh, prohibits anyone who has pled guilty uh, from uh, from from challenging that conviction on the basis of mm. innocence unless there's DNA. That, that law, that should be overturned. There's been uh, efforts to try to get legislation to overturn that bad case law because, you know, anyone, if they can actually show they're innocent, they should, the courthouse door should right. not be slammed in their face. I think that makes sense. We've been talking to Norman Reimer. I want to thank you very much. He is of counsel of Vladik, Raskin, and Clark, the former CEO of Fair Trials, the former executive director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and a practitioner of criminal defense law himself. Thank you very much. This has been very informative. Thank you. And when we get back, we will have Ask Anthony. So welcome back to The Middle Unplugged. As you know, when I do the radio show on Saturday, The Middle, which is on 2 o'clock on Saturdays, we have plenty of opportunities for feedback. And uh, when you do a podcast, it's a little bit different. People can't call in and complain. They can't call in and suggest things. So we've started a segment that started out being called Listener Mail, where people can reach out at at Rep Wiener on Twitter or Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook. Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. And we've started to change it a little bit in recent weeks because we are using it as a way to kind of clap back or talk back to some people who have raised questions or suggestions or maybe just said things that I thought needed to be corrected, responded to, or whatnot. And we're going to continue that today with Ask Anthony. And you'll probably remember, you'll probably recognize this fairly iconic media voice. The former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who's also uh, a candidate, has suggested that she would pardon Donald Trump if he were convicted. She'd be inclined to pardon him, saying it's simply wrong um, in any event. What, what, is your, what is your reaction to that at this point to say that? Yeah, well, she wasn't, that's Christiana Amapur, she wasn't asking me. She was asking Asa Hutchinson, another candidate for president of the Republican side, about this emerging tactic by Donald Trump's primary opponents to try to figure out how to handle the idea that he is being charged, not... um, And so some of them, as I've suggested on previous episodes, some of the candidates in the race are running for vice president. And also, there's no doubt that whoever emerges, and whether it's Donald Trump, which I think it'll be, or someone else, Donald Trump has a lot of support in the base of the party. That goes without saying. So they have started to suggest that they will pardon Donald Trump if he is convicted. Now, this gets a little bit more complicated by the fact that just yesterday, 
it was announced that the trial is going to start really soon in August. I mean, now it is understandable why someone like Nikki Haley or uh, uh, Senator Scott or any of them would say, I'm going to go ahead and pardon the president. I do believe it's, it puts them in kind of in a weird position that they appear to be tampering in ways that it just seems un- unseemly to be doing it so early, but I get it from a political perspective. But what we've also heard, Joe Manchin mentioned this, a couple of people have written columns about the idea that maybe Joe Biden should put pardon Donald Trump. And I think that raises a more interesting look. The idea would be kind of using, it's kind of counterfactual, but to use the Nixon example of kind of unifying the country, um, trying to show you're magnanimous. The problem with pardoning Donald Trump is that now that we know that the trial is, the effect of pardoning him would be to allow him to go ahead and run for president, perhaps be a president and do the same crimes again. There's no sign that he's really all that sorry. But the biggest concern about this is we always, at least in some part of the political spectrum, and this show is called The Middle Unplugged, I believe that there is a middle between the Venn diagram of right and left in which we can govern reasonably. We just had a conversation about a, about a place that the left and right can meet. I think that the left and the moderates and people in the middle have this, have this overestimation of the idea that a gesture or bipartisan legislation or reaching across the aisle in a State of the Union speech or even pardoning Donald Trump will have the effect to shake loose the partisanship in this country. I don't think it moves the needle one bit. I don't think that the moment that Donald Trump gets pardoned, that his supporters suddenly say, you know, that Joe Biden guy's a fairly reasonable chap. I'm going to start listening a little bit more. You may see some folks in the middle say, hey, that was a nice gesture to make. Uh, But I don't think it gets to where people who advocate for this uh, believe we're going to get. And the people who do advocate for this, including Joe Manchin, don't in any way um, suggest that the elements that you'd like to see in a pardon exist. There was some injustice that you're writing. No, people are talking about a pardon before we've even had a trial, that the, the, the person has gone on to live uh, a life that shows that he's uh, he's been redeemed. Well, that certainly is not Donald Trump. He's just on the television two days ago saying uh, that essentially, uh, uh, sorry, I'm not sorry. Um, and also, you know, a clear evidence that the person who committed the crime isn't going to do any more crimes, that they're all done with their crime doing. Donald Trump, basically has been saying, I would do the same thing all over again. So I think we have this notion deep in us that there is a middle here that we can capture. And that might be the case. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be doing this show. But when it comes to things like pardoning Donald Trump as a way to get to Donald Trump supporters, I don't think it's going to happen. For whatever, uh, and we can have a whole episode about this, but for whatever reason, we are now a country that is essentially a 40-40-20 country. 40% Democrats who would vote for Mickey Mouse or Anthony Weiner if they were on the ballot, and 40% who are Republicans that would vote for any Republican, any of the people that are running. Donald Trump, it looks like, is going to be that person. And then we have 20% of the country that are deciding elections. They're deciding, you know, which direction we're going to go. And even those people, you would not categorize them as truly independent because most of those people have a leaning one way or another. Um, And so uh, while the idea of pardoning Donald Trump may come from a a place of uh, bipartisanship, of letting bygones be bygones, of turning down the the partisan tension in the country, I don't think it would succeed. But thank you very much to Christiane Amaport for putting that question to me. Not really to me, but you get the idea. 
And I really do appreciate you joining us here on The Middle Unplugged. If you like what you hear, share the episode. Uh, subscribe, obviously. Some um, podcast platforms have an opportunity to leave comments. Please do those. I read all of those. And as I said, um, at Rep Wiener on Twitter, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook, WienerWABC on gmail.com. Um, and I would encourage you, uh, if you like this, to tune in on Saturdays or listen to The Middle, which is the original podcast. Um, I also, uh, at 3 o'clock, we have Left versus Right with me and Curtis Sliwa. That is also available on the podcast. All of this is available on the Red Apple Podcast Network or anywhere that you get such things. I also want to thank Eric Salas, our sound designer and producer for the program, and once again, Norman Reimer for being with us for such a good conversation. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>